So on Monday, Michael Heiser stepped into the unseen realm. He fought a cancer battle for a year and a half. And one of the reasons why I'm emotional is because I feel like I lost my spiritual father. I don't want to sniff because sniffing is stupid. I studied under him for the last two years. I haven't met the man personally, but every person that I have seen that has studied under him to some degree feels what I'm feeling. They feel like they've lost a spiritual father because of the fruit of what he's brought to my life. Um, and I had found myself, before I found out that he had died on Monday, actually I found out, because he died late Monday, so I found out on Tuesday morning, I'd found myself thinking a lot about this preach, because I knew obviously I was going to preach, thinking how could I honor him. So I, I think Holy Spirit was just preparing my heart for the, for the moment. But also preparing me to... Like, what I was thinking was, how can I honor him in this particular preach? So, what I'm going to do, I might use big words today, and I might struggle to pronounce them. But the reason why is because I want to honor him through using a lot of his catchphrases, a lot of his words that he used. And just, so you'll hear more of his words today than mine, because I want you to hear his heart. So, for those who've listened to him or read any of his work, listen up, because you may hear some stuff. I learned a new word when I was studying under him, telegraphing. <laughs> he said telegraph a lot. <laughs> anyway, I find it very interesting that, I'm just you talking so I can settle, that we started this series now, from the 26th of Jan, when he went home to kind of be into hospice care. And then we started this series at the beginning of the year. I found like there's something in the timing of this that God wanted to extend it. Not that we're special. I don't know. But just, uh, Gary says we are. It's our number eight in the Enneagram. <laughs> but just that God wants this, this stuff for us to, he wants us to understand this stuff. And one of the major fruits that I've seen when people unpack his work is the insatiable, like what Gary prayed, the insatiable hunger for the word of God. And I know Michael Heiser said that if he only, for the rest of his life, and I know he studied for 35 years this stuff, or let's say 25 because it was, I think he was 10 years in when he had this epiphany about Psalm 82 from what I can gather. So a good 20 years, let's say, and he felt like he could stay in Genesis 1 to 11 and study that for the rest of his life and not get bored. So that makes my number five very happy because I'm like, ooh, there's lots more to learn. And just for you to understand and know that this is not, even though we speak of him, a lot of this isn't him. He's just connecting dots. So he had or has over 7,000 scholarly papers that he's either read or gone through in some part. 
that affirm to what we're preaching on. And one of his, um, what he felt his calling was that to, to, to bridge the gap between the scholarly academic world, the biblical study to the lay person, the general person in the, in the pews, you and I. And I think he's done an incredible job of, let's say, dumbing it down for us so we understand what they're talking about. I've never met, well, not that I've met many scholars, but I've never met a, someone who studied in the academic world, like completely thoroughly academic, who will also go to conferences for aliens and preach the gospel. You should go and find out what he's done. It's really pretty cool. All right, so... Let's get going. So I'm going to do a little bit of a brief recap on our journey so far and the key concepts that we've learned because we had Alexander last week and there was a bit of a break, but it's always good to go over what, what's been happening because we need this stuff to go over and over and over again because some of it's known and some of it's unknown to us. Right. I don't know whether I need my glasses or not. Gary's like, probably, they're here. All right, so God wants us. What does God want? That's our series. Simple truth is he wants you and me. And why does he want us? He wants to be with us, enjoy us, and us to be with him and enjoy him in return. You know, God doesn't act randomly. He acts with major purpose. So when he created mankind or humankind, he wasn't trying to fulfill any kind of deficiency in himself. He didn't need us. He just wants us. And that's so important that we understand that. So God is among the Elohim, but he is, like Gary has said, he is superior. So no way, shape, or form are we ever saying that God is in the same category as any created being. God is uncreated. He is far above. Jesus is uncreated. He is far above. He is distinct from. And that is just like a foundation. We, you cannot miss or move or not remember in this whole series. God has a heavenly family, and I don't think we always think of it in that term. So he has this heavenly household called the Elohim. And they are, these guys are not only his family, but they are tasked to do stuff. And that is to carry out his decrees. He, he doesn't need them, but he chooses to have them because he wants to do stuff in community. So they represent God and what they are tasked to do. So they represent God, they're image bearers of God in the spiritual realm. Then, of course, we're his earthly family. And our human status and identity mirror his heavenly family. And as it is with his heavenly family, we too are tasked to administrate and to carry out his functions on earth. Now, the key word is his functions, not ours. And then heaven and earth are these two separate but interconnected realms. Okay, so we... Now, humans, as I said, are created to enjoy an everlasting access to God. That's what God's original plan was always meant to be. And we were supposed to work side by side with his loyal Elohim, right? We weren't meant to do this on our own, guys. Isolation is not what God wants from us. So we as his earthly family are tasked with helping him manage and maintain his creation. And then, of course, 
we work through that, all of this comes with a massive risk. Why? Because of our free will. And then, because we're imperfect. He is the only perfect being, like that song. We are imperfect. And he knew the risk when he gave us this free will. So, of course, both, both households now have experienced rebellion and have resulted in this ongoing war that we find ourselves in. Ha! But the good news, there's always good news when it comes to God, is that God is equally, if not more so, fully committed to preserving what he began. He started this. He's going to finish it. So two weeks ago, Gary asked and answered the question about why is there still, like, why is there evil and suffering in the world if God is the God of love and all those kind of questions. And it's an incredibly relevant question that I don't think we should shy, ever shy away from. But what we tend to do, and I kind of, if you were confronted with that question, I think your first port of call would go to Genesis 3, right? If, I mean, if Adam and Eve didn't mess up, didn't get us in this mess, right? So we assign kind of, when we look at the fall, we kind of, I mean, if you're, a, if you're a guy, you're like, Eve messed it all up. And then if you're a girl, like, come on, Adam, you really should have stepped in there. Help me out here. So we kind of assign a huge amount of blame, let's say, and a large portion of the blame onto Adam and Eve, and rightly so. But there's more to the story than meets our little modern eyes. And this is what we're going to now I'm going to be, what I'm planning to do is I'm going to flip-flop between the traditional view of what we've been taught through the church, the early church fathers, into what we know is kind of our modern way of thinking, and then to the actual biblical account of how they would encounter this kind of question, what they would be thinking. So we're going to be going through these two kind of things, and I'm going to be breaking it down. But today I'm going to be looking at Genesis 3, because you can always go back to Genesis. So when we think of in modern day or traditional Christianity, we think of the fall, we think of Adam and Eve, and the obviously we're thinking of from Genesis 3. And that's kind of where we land. You know, if somebody was to ask us, and maybe now we would add in like the little story about free will. So we've got a little bit more in our kind of, let's say, repertoire to be able to explain to somebody if they were to ask us this question. But for, for a, an ancient Hebrew, this question is actually quite incomplete. And that's what we're going to deal with. We're going to unpack why it's incomplete and why is there so much more. I feel like a very Mark ad today. It's like, no, wait, guys, there's actually more. And I mean, not to compare God with very Mark because that would be disappointing, but there is so much more. And trust me when I say I haven't dealt, I haven't put in here today everything and there's more than what I know and more than what Michael Heiser knows. There's so much more. So that's the exciting part, right? So when we think of the fall, we have this traditional lens, right? We think of the turf, Garden of Eden, pretty garden. If you go to the prayer garden, you'll think maybe this could be a little bit of an Eden. It's a little bit like this beautiful formalized garden that, you know, God planted. That's we go in a material kind of way. We think in a natural way, right? Then we think of our main characters, Adam and Eve. They're pretty cute. It's a cute Bible story, right? A little bit of a sad ending. Got all the pictures. 
I don't know, I think in pictures. So when I think of these through my traditional lenses, these are the images that come up in my head, <clears throat> unless I'm the only one. And our secondary character is this flippin' annoying talking snake. Hey? Come on, guys. You're all looking at me as if I'm, I'm nuts. Okay. Yes, some people think that it's a real talking snake. Yes, there are even some people who are believers who argue for the evolution of snakes. So at some point, I don't know what legs have to do with its ability to talk, but anyway, so apparently there's kind of like a zoology lesson that if there could be some argument that snakes had legs, but how that translates into them actually talking, I'm not sure, but anyway, you can live with that. All right, so this is kind of our view, very simplified, obviously, of Adam and Eve. And we've unpacked it more and more, but that's kind of where you're at. Are you all tracking with me? Good. All right. So the traditional lens, also, if you take Genesis 1 to 11, we, we demythologized. Oh, my gosh, what a word. In other words, we've removed every mythical element and or reduced it in order for us to make sense of it, right? So traditional Christianity would look at all these stories, and I've only put in three here. So we've seen Genesis 3 as a, a human rebellion. Genesis 6, oh my gosh, 1 to 4, we just simply ignore. And then the rest of Noah, because that's right afterwards, the flood and all that, we kind of remove all the mystical elements. Gosh, we can't even go there. If you go and read about watches and sons of God, and then they're made with humans, and oh no, brains too much, so we just ignore that. Moving on. And then Genesis 11, which is the Tower of Babel, simplified to like a cute story. Like, oh, they mixed up their language. These guys build a tower. And then we go on. Now, what's interesting is that the modern day translations still don't use references from the Dead Sea Scrolls. So they are missing a large portion of what these texts mean, especially in the Tower of Babel. They don't link it to Deuteronomy 32 and Psalm 82. They just read it in isolation. But we're going to get there. It's very exciting. Are you all excited or are you all feeling a little nervous? So I said this is a pretty much an incomplete answer. So if I was, if, if I was confronted with an ancient person, Israelite, or even... Let's say, I'm going to use the word A and E, but it's actually an ancient Near Eastern person. It's too long to say that every time, so I'm going to say A and E, and I'm going to refer to that in the text, because it's even too long to type, and I might trip over it. But if you, just ask yourself, let's just think in this moment about Genesis 3. Do you really believe it was a snake who could talk? Think about it. Have you ever thought... Did that really happen? Are you taking it too literally or not literal enough? So if it wasn't a literal talking snake and it's not about the evolution of snakes, then what or who was this character? And what was he? Why? Why was he in the garden in the first place? Because, I mean, the garden's supposed to be God's domain. 
Have you ever sat down? Ask yourself questions when you're reading the text. Why was Eve not surprised or shocked or even scared when she encountered this creature? And I get that we have some kind of lens that kind of sits there knowing that this was a supernatural entity. But we don't really make, do the, let's say, the hard work in trying to figure out who this guy was. So don't worry, I've done some work for you because you know how curious I am. I have even preached on Genesis 3. We have spoken about, like, because I kind of deduced that he couldn't be in the garden, right? Because he didn't belong there because it obviously was God's domain, so I'd gotten that far. But he must have been on the borders, and he kind of shouted into the airwaves, <laughs> and Eve heard him, and then she went to him. I preached on that, how wrong I was. That's okay. God doesn't mind it when we get it wrong. But there's always more that he's wanting to clarify, make more clear, and help us to understand the, the, the biblical stories within their context. So I can see all of your brains are like, hmm, why didn't I think of that question? Okay. So I'm going to keep saying this over and over again. Gary's going to say this over and over again. We really have to be careful of forcing the Bible to say things that it's not saying so we can feel better or we can put it in our grid or we can make sense of the narrative, which is what I did in that one preach. Yes, Satan was a spiritual being. And maybe he did look like a snake. But what does that mean? Ask yourself, have you reduced some of the stories to biblical, like cute Bible Sunday school stories? And not to offend any of your Sunday school teachers out there. <laughs> Christy's like, <clears throat> it's a start, but we need to build and expand and open up more of what God is saying. Because why? Some of these elements are just too weird for our natural, physical, science, modern mindsets. Uh, some of my slides haven't come through, right? <clears throat> anyway, so my Kaiser says, if it's weird in the Bible, it's important. So when you encounter something, you go, Woof, that's weird. Note to self, it's important, right? Okay, so let's go back to this question of where did evil come from? As I said, it's an incomplete answer. It's got a very cute, oh, okay, I apologize, Ray. Um, I've gone ahead of my slides. So we do need to be very careful and, how, and not force a Bible. Eh? And then if it's weird, it's important. That's pretty simplified, right? I struggle here re reading this because I'm like, surely not all the weird stuff is important. So where does evil come from? If we had a, a, a guy sitting here who lived two to 3,000 years ago, I'm sure he would be looking at us like in horror, like when we talk about a cell phone and the internet, even TV or cars, he would be like, I don't understand what you're saying. So the reverse will be true when he's going to be talking to us and we're like, we really don't get what you're saying. So we have to now step into their world and try and understand. So how would they answer? 
they would come up with three reasons, not just one. Mike Kaiser calls it three rebellions, right? And this is what we're going to be covering over the next three weeks. They would also see that Genesis 3 is a twin rebellion, where it would be human as well as spiritual. And we kind of know that, but we put more weight on the human side. And it's also seen as an entrance to rebellion within our world. So it's just the start of it. The sons of God, Elohim, they would have seen as the ones who rebelled and they mixed the divine with human, which in God's sight was profoundly evil. And we're going to unpack why. And then they would include, when they read the story of the Tower of Babel, they would include, they would know in their text, the context of Deuteronomy 32 and the context of Psalm 82. For them, when they read that, that's what they will be linking. Okay, and we're going to be unpacking this and we will be able to understand why they're linking this. So the divine rebellions had fallout. So we all kind of know the fallout from Genesis 3. That death came into humanity, not guilt, death, and that we were estranged from God. Our relationship with God now became separated. There was the sons of God, and that brought in, and the Hebrew mindset brought in this lethal threat to mankind, demons. Now, we assign demons as like a fallen angel, but there's more. Demons are quite a specific category, and it actually only comes in Genesis 6, and I'll explain more next week. There's a lot of to be continued here, peeps. Depravity. So we, we didn't really need help in messing things up, but the enemy kind of thinks, well, let's help them not just to rebel, but let's help them to, to destroy themselves as well. And then the Tower of Babel was... a an abandonment from God's side to humanity, in a sense. And don't, don't stop breathing. It's okay. God had a plan. Idolatry came in. And misery. It kind of explains where we are in this world today, right? These events were big deals in the intertestamental kind of period. So it was a time period where they call the second temple period. So the temple was demolished. They built a new one just before it got demolished. Jesus, first temple, I mean, first century Jews like Jesus, Paul, and all the, the New Testament writers had this stuff in their heads. They knew, and it comes through in their writings, and we're going to unpack that for you. You see, because for them, the Messiah couldn't, wouldn't just solve that one problem of sin. He had to solve all three and we're going to unpack that again. So we're going to go back to Genesis 3. So that's kind of an overview of what we're going to kind of work through. So today's key concepts. We're going to look at the context of Eden itself. It's not just a garden, guys, where they planted stuff. We're going to examine Ezekiel 28 because that's going to help us unpack what their thinking was. We're going to ask the following. We're going to look for what we call divine council references, which means in Eden, 
God was there, and where God was, he conducted his business because God works from home. And where he works from home, he had guys to help him, and that was his divine counsel. And they were there with him too in Eden. We're going to look at how on earth does this relate to the word serpent? And we're going to unpack that. How does Ezekiel 28 bring that out? And then we're going to look at the Hebrew language and how that brings it out. So we've got lots to get through. So let's look at the Eden context in terms of our traditional lens. So we kind of think that Eden and the world, and it's true to a degree, that Eden was created for us to live in, right? It was our kind of garden. It was a garden that we, and we do kind of tend to think that Adam was like this gardener. You know, he's going to be digging and planting and cultivating and maintaining a garden. Okay, so that's, I don't know, think about it. Is that, so our mindset is that Eden is a geographical place where there's planting of plants and animals reside. Almost like, like this cool zoo, you know, there's animals and whatnot and we also think that God kind of popped in daily, had a walk with them, they chatted about the gardening. I know I'm reducing it, but I'm doing it on purpose because if you think about it, that is what is there in the back of our minds. That's our lens. Um, and then he's off back to heaven to kind of carry on with his business in the heavenly realm. Well, I don't know. Come on, guys, be real. Get a daily walk. The reality is that we humans are invited into, by God, into his space, his domain, and we get to cultivate his garden, but not in the way that you and I think. We get to partner with his plans. And there's so much more. How would the ancients view Eden? So Eden... The language, the, the imagery that is used from even Genesis 1, the seven days, it's not a time period like we understand, clock, one day, 24 hours. The seven days, the earth, the mountains, the gems. Who's ever asked the question, why do they talk about gold and gemstones in the Garden of Eden? Have you ever sat back and gone, well, that's a little strange. It talks about gold. How does that fit in? So we just bloop, pass over it because we don't understand. We don't have a grid for it. All of that language is temple language. And I know we, in some ways, to some degree, understand that. And there's a little bit of a grid. But we've got to now put it together and link it. Because what is, it's telling an ancient person immediately with all that language. It's not about a structure of a temple like we understand a building. It's God's dwelling place. God came to earth to reside and live in Eden. Where God is, because he is divine and he's the ultimate Yahweh above all, that makes that place sacred, holy. Therefore, we call it a temple. And even like 
So Eden is now God's earthly archetype, like another picture of the heavenly reality. We kind of know that. So where God conducts, where he lives, he conducts his business, which means his home office, if we want to put it in our language, which means guess who's there? His divine counsel, his family in the heavenly realm, because remember, heaven and earth are interconnected. So take it a step closer. Not only do Adam and Eve get to hang out with God, but Adam and Eve get to hang out with his, their kind of family in the, from a heavenly perspective. they hanging out with God's heavenly family as well. Okay. So now I want you to kind of park that there. Remember who they're hanging out with. Remember what this place is. Now we're going to go to Ezekiel 28 because the, these are all interlinked. Remember that picture that I showed you of all these, the images of the, the rainbow and all that? This is how it's working. Hyperlinks of the Bible. So the biblical authors were very well known for repurposing the terms and cultures of the idea, the culture around them and using it n- not to endorse the culture. In some ways, they actually made fun of the culture, but they used it to repurpose it so that they can make their own theological point about their amazing God. So that's what Ezekiel 28 is doing. It actually isn't, it isn't about human rebellion, and it isn't necessarily about Eden, but it gives us very important clues as to what Eden really was. Reading, if you go home, go, go home and read Ezekiel 28. kind of talks about this king. All right, it talks about a human, and then the language changes, I think. And it suddenly becomes talking about, like, you were in Eden, and you get very confused. So they're mirroring, they're paralleling two stories to kind of contrast a human, arrogant guy who really thinks more highly of himself than he ought, and another spiritual guy who thought more highly of himself than he ought, and that's Genesis 3. The language is linking to each other. The imagery is there. So when this guy, the prince of time, he's accused of extreme arrogance. This guy really, really, really was narcissistic. He considered himself a god. It even says he considers himself to sit in the seat of the gods, which is another reference to divine counsel language. So that phrase in their minds is associated to God's divine counsel. It refers to Eden as God's holy mountain. Because in the beginning, I was asking, well, they're talking about Eden as if it was a mountain because the temple, the high place. But nowhere in Genesis 3 does it talk about a mountain. But Ezekiel 28 talks about a mountain. So you've got to keep adding all these layers of information and points of data that God is giving us. That is, again, another point of reference to the divine counsel. And the reason why we say that is, so the term sits the seat of the gods in Hebrew, and I'm not even going to try pronounce it, that is an associative term or phrase 
with the authority and the throne room of God's counsel. So that's what they would know immediately. Like if I said internet to you, you guys know what that means. Well, most people. Mom, do you know what the internet means? <laughs> the difference between email, internet, all the different apps. Some people struggle. So some people think that maybe this, this um, divine being in Ezekiel 28, because when we demythologize that, when we remove the mythical elements from the biblical stories, we, we, tend, we have to go to the humanistic point of view. So we can't be talking about a spiritual person here. So we're going to be talking, they must have been talking about Adam. You were in the Garden of Eden, blah, blah, blah. But the problem is that it meets some of the criteria of the data, doesn't meet all of it. So Michael Heiser says, and I trust that he's, <laughs> he's studied this way more than any of us. He says it's a more coherent alternative is that Ezekiel 28 is talking about a divine being who's forgotten his place in the picking order. So they're typecasting a villain here by comparing his arrogance to a su another supernatural dude who rebels against Yahweh. And to any other A&E reader or kind of person who's reading this, the notion that a human prince would think he's any kind of on par with this is kind of ludicrous. To the Hebrew audience, it was literally offensive. But that was the point. So how does this relate to the serpent? I mean, there's no serpent mentioned in Ezekiel 28. Go and read it. There's, it doesn't say anything about a hissing snake. How are we going to link this? That's well, great you asked. So when you read, he talks about this divine being as being incredibly beautiful. In fact, he's so beautiful, he's become so arrogant. Shining and radiant. Comes, it kind of comes to mind when you read about all those gemstones that are part of his adornment. So for them, gemstone Im imagery was telegraphing something. Why? Gemstones, stars to them were shiny. It was about appearances and who had very shiny parents' characteristics. The sons of God. They were luminous. Shining. Why? Because they were being in God's presence. They reflect his glory. So that was a known characteristic, not in the biblical author's time, but in the whole part of that culture. When they spoke about stars, when they spoke about shiny stuff, they spoke about divine, spiritual, natural entities and beings. And it was designed that way. They, they didn't have any other grid to be able to explain it to people. Then we look at the wording. Okay, so just, again, park that information because I'm going to explain serpent a little bit more because you're still like, huh? How does that relate? I'll let you know later on. Just, so you've got two things to park now. So the next thing is, God calls this guy in Ezekiel 28 
a throne guardian cherub. Now, please don't think of, now, when I think of cherub, I have to kind of undo my thinking. I think of that cute little fat chubby <laughs> little angel that sends the harp on the clouds. That is simply nowhere near what a seraphim and cherub would, even remotely, those guys were scary. So, now you start to see us unpacking why a serpent is used. A serpent or a dragon, you can do it in both, are scary to them. They were frightening. They breathed fire. You couldn't control them, and they could poison you. All the arts, well, most of the art engravings from that time period, even the Egyptian art, have these throne guardians, and they're depicted in the art as either animals or serpents or dragons. You see it in Chinese art as well, interestingly enough. So now they are linking. This is the link. They're linking. Divine arrogance in Eden, where a member of God's divine council thought himself not only, he thought himself on par with God, a little arrogant, I think. I don't even have time to go through Isaiah 14, but it has the same elements. Go and read it. And it portray, portrays this divine being who's hopelessly enamored with himself by his own brilliance. He's incredible. And his arrogance was so great that he has declared himself above not only the divine council, but above God himself. And he wants God's seat. Okay, so go and read Isaiah with all those little links, all the imagery, and see if you can see some of this. So now we go to, back to our original gangster. He's the original OG, the serpent guy. This is for my kids. They're probably like, mom. Michael Heiser calls him the original reb, 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 rebel. So if we take this, all that stuff into account, let's go back to Genesis 3. So now we know that he was appointed by God to guard Eden. He was there with a purpose. So putting that together, this is why Eve knew him and why she wasn't scared of him because she trusted him because he was supposed to be there, but he was supposed to point her back to God, not to himself. She trusted what he was telling her. And he was the one who enticed her to rebel against God with the information he gave her. And I'll unpack that now. So maybe you're still a little unsure. Maybe some of the leaps are a little bit too, too much for you. And that's okay. I got more. Like I said, very mark ad peeps. So the Hebrew word, and we're going a little technical. The Hebrew word in... in it's called Nakash. I, pre I preached on this. So your most straightforward answer or kind of translation means serpent. That's why a lot of your translations go there. That's why we have the word serpent or snake. Now, remember, Hebrew doesn't have any vowels or didn't have any vowels then. So if you remove all the vowels from this word, you're going to get, and I don't know how they get, that word, Nakesh. Nakesh means the diviner. Nakesh is someone, an oracle, or somebody who's taking information from the 
the divine realm, the supernatural realm, and bringing it to humanity. What do you think the Nakesh did with Eve? He gave her information. He goaded her with divine revelation that was slightly off truth. You won't die. Now, the next one. So that's another little kind of thing in your pocket. Some more links. 1 Chronicles 4.12 uses that word as an adjective. I think that's correct. Don't, don't um, all you English people don't like shout at me now. It was used as a name of a place. So don't miss the point. Don't get stuck on the grammar. <laughs> the name of the city means a place where bronze or copper smiths, really. What do you do when you shine up those metals? What happens when you polish them? I've given it away. They become shiny. You have the appearance aspect as well. So there's another link that these guys are going to. Daniel 6, just a little add in here. This word was used to describe divine beings. So all of this, all of this, all of this, your writer wants everyone. Sometimes when you're writing something, you want your readers to think of some of the possible meanings. In this case, the writer wants you to think of all the possible meanings. And guess what? All of those fit. You've got the serpent imagery coming through about a divine throne temple guardian. You've got some spiritual being who's giving information from the unseen realm and using it to go to Eve. And then you've got this shining appearance, which again talks about a supernatural entity. Okay, so all of that fit. So the next thing is the fallout. So now we can rest that Eden and the snakey guy is more than a snake. So now we're going to talk about the fallout because this kind of brings it to an incredible kind of conclusion for Genesis 3 on what I'm speaking on today. So we know that the fallout was death to humankind and estrangement, our relationship with God. Remember that when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, he went with them. They weren't abandoned in the way that we think he, were. he abandoned us. They were just blocked from the access to the tree of life in their condition that they were in now. So, it was a successful rebellion, somewhat. So he successfully enticed humanity to sin, to rebel against God, but his hope was that God would destroy humanity immediately. He wanted instant annihilation. God knew better. So death did come, but it was incremental, and there was a process. And here's why. So he failed in that regard. So tick, got, got humanity to sin, failure in annihilating us. It doesn't ever excuse Adam and Eve from their disobedience and rebellion. Now listen to this, God, Adam's curse never superseded God, the Eden mandate that God had. It just made it harder. 
Edom mandate's still in play. And we're going to look at how God keeps bringing this up in the other stories. Eve's curse, and this is super interesting, is intertwined with the serpents. Well, what do you mean, Louise? Why? Even though she, her pain is multiplied in childbirth, it doesn't mean she won't experience pain. It means it's multiplied, not only in childbirth, but in child rearing. But it is important that she continues to have children. Why do you ask? Well, that's a really good question. Okay. Why do you think Eve needed to carry on having children? That was a part of her curse, but it's a part of what? The answer to Eve's redemption. Who came from Eve eventually? Who was born of a woman? And Elisa's got that smile. See, God's goal was, may have been delayed, but it was never, ever, 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 ever defeated. He knew through Eve's redemption that a human descendant will come and undo all that this divine re rebellious whatnot started. And as Michael Heiser says, a human threat to the Nakash is absolutely fitting. He relied on the justice of God to eliminate his rivals. However, being removed from Eden didn't mean full death annihilation right away. So after the fall, the only way for, to extend the work of God is through childbearing. We do know that in the curse, the Nakash also have offspring. And this is where the warning comes in for us. The Bible describes this ongoing war, this conflict, right, between heaven, good and evil, if you want to put it like that. You see, all who oppose God's kingdom become the seed of the Nakash. And God always asks us this question of us. Who are you most loyal to? Who is, where does your allegiance lie? With which kingdom are you in? Is your allegiance with the Nakash, where your seed is from him, opposing God's kingdom, or are you in the kingdom of light? Into, stepping into, surrendering to the kingdom of God, where Jesus is your king. So Genesis 3 tells us why we die, why death is here, why we have a need for redemption and salvation, and why we can't save ourselves. So next week, we talk about the situation gets a little worse, in fact, much worse before it gets better. But then that's going to be for next week. <laughs>